This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. David? Okay, so very important that you know the topic because the topic tonight is not your regular topic. It's a topic about anti-Semitism. Uh, it's something, unfortunately, that the Jewish nation has seen throughout the history of time. But even more unfortunately, it's something that we have seen more recently. Uh, you know, it's becoming more common. Uh, you know, and it's been making it into the news. So the question is, is that how do we understand what anti-Semitism is? Also, what do we are to learn from these types of, of events? Now, the whole concept of anti-Semitism, it's, it's not a new concept. Unfortunately, the Jews know this since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time, you, even, even you look in the, since about the year 250 common era to about 1948 when the state of Israel was established, you're talking about roughly about 1,700 years, the Jewish people as a whole have been expelled from over 80 countries. In a period of 1,700 years, the Jewish people have been kicked out of over 80 countries. If you do an average on that, that's an average of about every 20 years we get kicked out of another country. That's, an, that's, a, crazy, that's a crazy number. And when we just get kicked out, it's not very politically correct to be like, hey, by the way, your time has expired. You know, Bechavot, please leave. It doesn't work that way. When we get kicked out, we get kicked out in the most brutal fashion possible. Just to name some of the examples, you look at the, from the year 1095 to the year 1348, Common Era, there was the era of the Christian Crusades, that numerous, uh, numerous is not, thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were brutally murdered under the Christian rule. You have the end of the Middle Ages, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, that was blamed on the Jews, which we'll soon see, you know, it's very common to blame the Jews. They blamed the Jews, and not only that, because they blamed the Jews, again, Tremendous amount of Jews, uh, a number of Jews were, were murdered and massacred. Then what do you had? You had the Jews that they fled to Spain. And then you had the Spanish Inquisition. And then you had, you know, in the year 1915, Grand Duke Nicholson, Nicholas, commander-in-chief of the Russian army, had over 100,000 Jews murdered in deportations. And you have in 1917, just two years later, the Ukrainians, Ukrainians they went and they massacred 200,000 Jewish people. And unfortunately, the most recent one that we are very well aware of is the Holocaust, where six million Jewish people unfortunately perished. Now, we start asking why, how, when, where, like how did this all come into being? Now, I want to share with you some information that H produced as in a seminar called Why the Jews. I found this information fascinating, and I want to share this with you. Now, we have to distinguish, when we try to figure out why do the Jewish people have consistently people that are going and blaming them, causing us tremendous amount of problems, persecuting us, and they're going kicking us out of the land, killing us. We have to ask the question, why? Now, when we ask the question, why, we have to differentiate between a cause and an excuse. What's the difference between a cause and an excuse? Very interesting when you think, you know, the philosophical terms. If you have a reason that something is happening, then if you remove that reason that something should not happen anymore. So if you remove the cause, the effect should no longer happen. So if we could figure out why the Jewish people have this anti-Semitic acts of terror, or whatever it is that you want to call it, if we could remove that, maybe we could remove the acts of terror. Maybe we could remove these anti-Semitic acts. However, if we're going to go, and we're going to go after all these reasons and all these ideas of why the Jewish people are blamed, and we remove those ideas, and the Jewish people are still persecuted, that means that these are not reasons, rather these are excuses. So let me explain to you the concept as follows. 
I very often to speak to people who don't believe in God, don't believe in Hashem, don't believe in the Torah. And one of the things I like to ask them is as soon as they come in, as soon as they sit down, I said, okay, let me ask you a question like this. If I am able to answer all your questions, bold, capitalize all, all your questions, are you going to leave this room tonight keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher? Are you going to be leaving room this, this room tonight 100% religious? Nine out of ten times, you know what I get the answer? Be like, I don't know. I, you know, I have to think about it. Maybe I'll have more questions. I said, no, no, no. I'm going to answer all your questions. Every single question that you have, I will, hypothetically. Right? I'm not saying I can do that. Hypothetically, let's say I can answer all your questions. Will you be religious right here, right now? Nine out of ten times, they say, I don't know. I'm probably going to have more questions. So I'm like, so you don't have questions, you have excuses. Meaning that you don't want to be religious. So now all of a sudden you have questions on why not to be religious, which was really excuses. So I can't really answer excuses, I can answer questions. So if we plug in that information to anti-Semitism, and we start thinking, okay, why is there anti-Semitism? Let's say we could remove all the concept of anti-Semitism, all the reasons, if anti-Semitism still exists, and we, that means that it's all excuses. So let's go from a handful of very, very common reasons that historians and sociologists place the reason for anti-Semitism. The most common one, I'm sure you'll all figure this out, the most common one is money. Like the Jewish people and money, right? It's, it's just known, right? It, you know, like the picture of Harsinai is a Jewish person running down with two bags of, of money, like with a hooked nose, you know, running down and like the Torah in the back pocket or something. You know, right? that's like the concept, Jewish people and money. So you know why? A lot of historians and sociologists say that the Jewish people are hated and have anti-Semitism. Very simple. The Jewish people are in charge of the money. And in fact, there was a book that was written about this. I don't know if anybody here is aware of this. There's a book that was printed out in 1903 called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This was written, this was a very anti-Semitic book. It's not being sold in the back. Do not look for it. It's not going to be there. It's a fraudulent book. It was actually um, it, it was actually proven to be fraudulent in the Times of London in the year 1921. But this was a book that was created by the Russian secret police. Police. This is before the KGB, right? They created this book, and in this book they had this concept where Jewish people had secret meetings to control the world. Wow. <clears throat> Now, from the last meeting that I went, I'm just kidding. This, this obviously doesn't exist, right? We know that there's no such thing as, like, you know, the Jewish people controlling the world with who knows what. However, it doesn't go with just like, okay, you know, like a, there's a Russian secret police that produced it. This was a very, very, very highly published book and it was, it, that was translated into numerous languages. One of the most highest selling books ever created. I probably second to the Bible, which whoever's not familiar is the Torah. And something very interesting. When you look... I'm sure here you're here. You're familiar with somebody by the name of Henry Ford. Henry Ford was the founder of Ford Motor Company, the car company, uh, you know, Ford. He went and he had a newspaper called the Dearborn Independence, and he translated into English this. You know, it was written in Russian. This, you know, this the protocols of the elders of Zion, and he put it into his newspaper. And not only that, he went and he paid for a half a million copies to be distributed throughout the entire United States. Whoever drives a Ford, congratulations. So you have this person and many other people that are decimating disinformation throughout the entire world. Now, obviously, when you hear that the Jewish people are controlling the world, what's going to happen from that? Persecution. Ah, the Jewish people are the cause of the reason for all our problems. Now, this happened in 1903. So you're talking about well over 100 years ago. 
What about today? What about, you think like people still believe in it? I want to tell you a true story. Crazy. This is uh, like, I, when I read this story, I was like, there's no way. There was a Jewish physicist that was working with Exxon Corporation. And he was working with a, another Chinese scientist. And they were working for a few months and became friendly. And after a few months, this Chinese scientist goes over to this Jewish physicist and says, you know, I have a question for you. Why did you get into physics? And the Jewish you know, physicist is like, he's like, I understand, like, why, like, I wanted to be a physicist, I wanted to study this, so I, I, I went into this. So the scientist is like, but yeah, but, but why? Like, like, you could have gone into business. And he's like, but why should I go into business? I, I wanted to be a physicist. He says, this is what the Chinese scientist told this man, this Jewish physicist, says, if you would have been a businessman, you would have had a risk-free business. He's like, what are you talking about? What type of business is risk-free? There's no business that's risk-free. So he says, come on, this is the Chinese scientist is going and telling over this Jewish physicist. And he says, come on, we know, you know, you got the organization, wink, wink, backing you. And the Jewish physicist is like, what organization are you talking about? He's like, you know, the organization, you know, the Jewish organization. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, well, it's very simple. He says, the second that a Jewish person gets married, the organization funds them to start a business. It's a true story. And then if the business fails, this organization buys out the debt and they could start a new business. And it keeps on happening until the business is successful. So why didn't you go into business? Why didn't you go into, in, you know, into physics? He's like, there's no such thing as this. Like, Are you kidding me? There's no such thing as this type of, there's no organization. But yeah, this is a recent story where you see people still believe that the Jewish people are controlling the money, they're controlling the media, they're controlling every problem that you have in your life. It's much easier to say it's his fault or it's her fault and it's not my fault. And that is the Jewish nation. Welcome to the Jewish nation. That's who we are. And you think about it, be like, okay, fine. So like when the Jewish people have money, that makes sense that they would get persecuted, they would get murdered, they would get killed, they would get exiled, they would get sent out of the countries. But what happens when the Jewish people don't have money? What happens when the Jewish people are lacking money? Look at the Middle Ages. You look at the, through the, the shtetls and from the 17th to the 20th century in Europe. You look at through the, the, the ghetto in Germany. The Jewish people had nothing, yet they were still persecuted. So what do we see over here? Something very interesting. That the Jewish people were the problem whether they had money or whether they didn't have money. Well, something very interesting. I had a phone call a few weeks ago. Some guy calls me up and he's like, the conversation starts like this. He's like, why did the Jewish people have so many children? And I'm like, hello to you too. And you know, like, what's going on with your life? And he's like, why do the Jews, and the second that any conversation starts with why do the Jews, or look at these Jews, generic, you know, like, nine out of ten times, it's not going to end up, like, so awesome. It's usually, like, something bad is going to happen. I'm like, oh, man, why the Jews? Yeah, of course, what's going to happen now? And he's like, why do the Jews have so many children? I said, what's the problem? Let them have as many children as you want. What do you care? Stop butting into their, you know, their, their life. And he goes and says, no, listen, it has an effect on me. He says that if the Jewish people have 10 children, 12 children, 15 children, and they can't afford it, then the government has to pay for it. If the government has to pay for it, then I'm paying for it. So why do I have to pay for the Jewish people to have children? So I said, that's a very good question. He says, let me ask you a qu- another question. Did you ever ask for people that are on Medicaid or Medicare, how come... They are, some of them, are obese. Did you ever have a problem with obese people on government assistance? And he's like, why would I have any problem with government people, with people that are, that are living off government medical insurance that have obesity? And I said, very simple, because it is known as a medical 
science fact, that if you are obese and you have other medical conditions, the obesity causes tremendous amount of medical, medical problems. It causes hypertension. You, you could cause sleep apnea where you go to sleep and you're not breathing. You call gout, arthritis, osteoarthritis. You have um, certain type of cancers. It's very expensive for the government if you, let's be very honest, are fat. It's very expensive. Did you ever ask that question, how come I have to pay for somebody who can't put the fork down? Like, is that my, like, why should I pay for that? And I asked him that. I said, did you ever ask that question? And he says, no. And I said, why not? It's a good question. He's like, you're right. It is a good question. <laughs> and then I go and I said, what about... People that are living in the ghettos, the high crime rate area, that are getting also government assistance, Section 8, and it's a very high crime rate. And because of that, they're using their money to buy flat screen TVs and, I don't know, drugs, and they're using that to follow up more crime. Did you ever ask anybody, why do I have to pay for that? And he's like, no. I said, why not? And then I go and I ask him, I said, but look at it. He says, let's say somebody, a bunch of Jewish people move into your neighborhood. People are not happy with that. They're Jewish people. I'm like, what's wrong with the Jewish people? It's the best blessing that you could have for your real estate value. Anybody who's a real estate agent knows that the second that the Jews move in, it goes skyrocketing. Your, your, your thing is, is, not only that, the Jewish people pay for public school tax. Jewish people don't send to public school. Shouldn't send to public school, I should say. So like, you only have a question of why do Jewish, because I have the, I've gotten this question many times. Why do Jewish people have so many children? I said, you don't have a problem with the Jewish people having many children. You have a problem with Jews. Now you want to figure out where are you going to put that blame? Oh, many children. That's what the problem is. That's not the problem. Anti-Semitic people don't have a problem with, Jew- with, with the Jewish concept. They have a problem with Jews. So when they have money, the problem is because they have money. When they don't have money, the problem is because they don't have money. When they have too many children, the problem is because they have too many children. When they don't have enough children, the problem is because they have too- not enough children. Now... What's very interesting is that you look at the next concept. The next concept is power. They claim to say that what? That the Jewish people have a lot of power. And because of that, that causes us to have a lot of anti-Semitic feelings because they control the media and they control the government and whatever other nonsense that people say. So now, if somebody that you know has a high power position... Do you want to persecute him? Do you want to go and cause him problems? Or do you want to go and be his best friend to do the best thing that you could possibly do? Because what? He's going to give you favors. You know, he's going to like hook you up. You know, like he's going to get you what you want. So if you want to say that the Jewish people are be there's anti-Semitic, you know, situation because the Jewish people have too much power, that doesn't make any sense. The Jewish people, when they have too much power, should be the best friends of everybody because everybody wants to deal with people who have power. And in fact, when the Russians introduce the book of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to the Japanese, the Japanese took it differently than everybody else. The Japanese read the book, and they believed it. And they were like, wait a minute, the Jewish people control everything? You know what the Japanese did? It says, we want to do business with you. <laughs> you control everything, let's do business. Come come to, come to China, come to you know, Shanghai, come, come, come to us, let's do some business together. They were smart. So if the Jewish people control the government, if the Jewish people have the power, then it sh- everybody should have acted just like the Japanese. And the Japanese called this something very, you know what they called this, this like plant? It was called the fugu plant. The fugu is a very poisonous blowfish that for the Chinese people, it's a delicacy. That They have to very, very carefully extract the poisonous glands. And once they extract the poisonous glands, then they feed it as a delicacy. This is how they saw the Jews. The Jewish people 
were like a poisonous blowfish, but they, ha- they were delicious. So we have to extract the poison from them. I'm like, what poison? Like the Jewish people, like, we'll do your taxes, we'll sue you, and then we'll heal you when you go to the hospital. Like, what? Like, where is our danger, you know, that we have? But yet the Japanese, this is how they saw it. What did they see? They said, okay, no, let's, let's bring them. They call it fugu, fugu for the, for the blowfish. They brought the Jews, and they wanted to extract the good from them. So what do we see over here? Then when the Jews had power, they were hated because they had power. When the Jews didn't have power, they were hated because they didn't have power. When the Jews had money, they were hated when they had money and when they didn't have... We can't win. It's like a relationship, right? We just can't win. Like, there's no way out in this. Then there is reason number three. Reason number three is something called the outsider theory. The outside theory is, you know why Jews are hated? Because they look different. They got something growing out of their hair in the wrong places. Not the style. The style now is... Very interesting. The style now is payas reverse. Everything on top, nothing where the payas is supposed to be. So the Jews look different. They have payas. It, it just doesn't make sense. They dress differently. They have some weird strings coming out of them. They're trying to get reception from somewhere. Who knows what's going on? They have another, you know, kippah on their head. They have a yarmulke to block out the Federal Bureau of Investigation from listening. Whatever it is, right? It was, you know, we, have, we look different. So maybe that's why the Jews are hated. Because we look different. What happened in the 18th century? 18th century came, you know, the Enlightenment period. And the Enlightenment period where it gave equal rights to all the people. And what happens is when the Jewish people had equal rights, they shaved off, unfortunately, their pelt. They took off their kippot. They took away their tzitziot. And what happened? They started becoming more secular. And it is said that the Jewish people became more French than the French people. That's how, that's how far they went there. And what happened after that? Very, very famous you know, movement. Unfortunately, there's a, a, you know, there's a neo-Jewish uh, movement that is called the Reform Movement that came after, you know, after this Enlightenment period. And what happened? Here's where you had that the German, you know, unfortunately, part of the German Jewish population went and they started this Reform Movement. They said that the Torah, got to go. Talmud, got to go. Not man-made, it's all, this man-made, it's all, there's nothing to do from God. And they started changing everything in the Torah. The Jewish reform synagogues, which later became temples, started looking more Christian than more Jewish. The Jewish people started becoming like everybody else. Ah, they started, they took off their payout, they took off the kippot, they, they took off the tzitziot. They went and they became just like everybody else. And it is known that the majority of the Jewish people in France, in Italy, and in Germany assimilated. You would think now anti-Semitism is gone. The entire Jewish nation, like, you know, unfortunately, such a large majority went and became part of the non-Jewish nation. But yet what happened? Because Hitler came along. And what did Hitler said? He said, no, 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 these are the people that are trying to influence our Aryan race. And he went and he, why did he went and he, he had an agenda against the Jewish people? He said, it's not enough that the Jewish people are too Jewish when they're Jewish. It's also when they're not Jewish that they're trying to infiltrate us. So we can't be too Jewish, we can't be not Jewish. We can't be too powerful, we can't be not powerful. We can't have too much money, we can't have not too much money. So where can we go? Like, there's nowhere else to go. There's no reason. What do we see over here? We see over here as we're going along that everything over here for anti-Semitism, there's no reason for it. It's rather, it's an excuse. Then there's something related, related to this is the chosen people. We are, it is known that the Jewish nation, you know what, there's actually an interesting study that was done in the University of California. And they asked them, I think it was eight questions, and they asked them, why do you think that the people hate the Jewish nation? And the highest scoring answer, 59% of the people, all non-Jews, answered because the Jewish people feel that they're the chosen nation. 
The Jewish people feel that they're the chosen nation. That's why we don't like them. Who do you think that you are that you're chosen and I'm not? And that's why they hated him. So what happened? Again, let's look at the Enlightenment period. Let's look at Germany. What happened when the Jewish people said we're not chosen? What happened when the Jewish people said we're just like everybody else? What happened? Again, Hitler came along and told us, no, you are different. When we come and we say we're not different, somebody else comes and reminds us, no, 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 you're different. Just remember that you're different. Furthermore, there's another interesting point. That if the Jewish people were persecuted because we, were, we claim to be the chosen nation, then that means that everybody else who claims to be the chosen nation should also be persecuted. What happened to the Christians? They claimed to be the, the, the chosen nation after the Jews. Muslims also claimed to be the chosen nation after the Jews. China is known, the name China is known as the center of the universe. That's pretty arrogant, no? Like, why aren't they persecuted? Jap, you know, Japan is known to be the source of the sun. Also, none of these people except for the Jewish nation were persecuted. Meaning that it has nothing to do with being called chosen, being not called chosen. Being have power, have not having power. Having money, have not having money. The bottom line is it's, they just want to hate us. And if they just want to hate us, then they're going to hate us. And they're going to find a reason why they want to hate us. Let's go to another reason. Something called deicide. Deicide is the killing of a god. This is why the Christians say, you know why the Jews are hated? Because they killed JC. They killed their god. That's why, they're, that's why they're hated. But it's something very interesting. Initially, when Christianity started, there was no anti-Semitism from the Christians to the Jews. And if the Christians really believed that the, Christians, that the Jewish people killed their God, then they should have had anti-Semitism right in the beginning. But yet it didn't happen. It only happened several centuries later is when the church fathers decided that, oh, the Jews have to be persecuted. Why? Because they went and they killed, you know, you know JC. Even though, this is how fantastical their mind works, that even though... That in their New Testament, it says that the Romans killed them. So they should hate the Romans, but they don't. They made that the capital of their religion. They should not hate the Jews, but they do. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's all an excuse. Let's go through one final, one final reason. Something called the scapegoat theory. The scapegoat theory is that when you have a lot of problems, you like to blame somebody else. Anybody that's dealt with anything in the marital situation knows this is true. It's always her fault. It's always his fault. I'm the perfect spouse. He's a... He's so lucky that he found me. Like, you know, like, like I am the most amazing blessing from God, second to the Mashiach and Moshe Rabbeinu, and, like, she doesn't appreciate me. I don't know why. Like, that's how it's, and you know why? It's her fault. Like, because I'm perfect. And no, no, it's his fault because, you know, I'm practically Queen Esther that is, like, the, you know, like, living in his house. I'm like the queen, you know. So, like, you have everybody blaming that. No, it's somebody else. And that is something called the scapegoat theory. What's the scapegoat theory? The scapegoat theory means that when problems happen, you want to blame somebody else. And this is what the historian sociologists say. What happened in Germany? Germany had a lot of problems. And you know what they said? They're like, oh, you know who we should blame? The Jewish people. By the way, the Jewish people were blamed for the reason why Germany lost World War I. There were about 0.8% of Jewish people in Germany, yet we were blamed for that. We were also blamed for the fact that there was an economic crisis in Germany. 0.8% that we were still blamed for that. So we were blamed as a scapegoat. The problem with this theory is as follows. In order to blame somebody, you have to have a, some sort of hatred beforehand. Imagine Hitler would, would come up and he would say, the reason why Deutschland, the reason why Germany is under so much problems is because of people with freckles. And that's why they would say that the, the people with freckles are the reason, uh, the, the downfall of the German, and the people, the German people would be like, well, I don't understand, what's the problem with people with freckles? Like, we have no problems with you. Like, you know, my cousin is a freckle person. You know, like, I don't know what's the correct political term for that, but like, you know, 
you know, my, my cousin is a polka dot. You know, like I, like, I have no problem with that. But why do people go and they have a problem with the Jews? Because deep down, they had a problem with the Jews beforehand. And once you have a problem with the Jews beforehand, so then fine. Then you find a reason, then you can plug it into any reason that you want. So the scapegoat theory, again, is not a real reason. And we look at it, something very interesting. The Jewish people, there were pogroms in Europe because of well poison. We poisoned the waters. Not only that, we poisoned the ear somehow. We figured it out. Right? We, po- we, po- we poisoned everything. We know, uh, Israel of Kares, but somehow the Jewish people drank blood of a non-Jewish you know, child you know, on Pesach. Like, they come things that make no sense. So when you break this down, so we're hated because we're too poor, we're hated because we're wealthy. We're hated because we have too much power, we're hated because we don't have enough power. And something very interesting also, if you break down the reason, something in World War II, the Japanese went and they were actually, the, the entire Mir Yeshiva was able to escape through Japan. And why were they able to escape through Japan? Because the Japanese read the protocols of the Enders of Zion and they said, well, look at this. You know, like Jewish people, you know, they're gold. You know, they're, they're going to make us, you know, some money. So Germany, which also, you know, very much heavily sent out the protocols of the Elders of Zion, was the reason that the Jewish people died in the Holocaust. And at the same book, the same reason, are the reason that the Jewish people were saved. So here we see something very interesting when you break it down. It has nothing to do with the people. We're saved for the same reason that we're murdered. We're persecuted for the same reason that we're saved. It makes absolutely no sense. We're hated because we don't look like everybody else. But then when we look like everybody else, we're hated, Germany. Right? We're hated because we call chosen. But then we say that we're not chosen, we're still hated, Germany. So what is the reason that we are hated? Let's look at Hitler Yemachshemai's uh, you know his 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 goal. His goal, killing the Jews wasn't a means to end. You know, like an, it wasn't like something that he like. It was it wasn't a means to end. It was a goal in itself. Hitler said that the entire war, the entire fight that we have for world domination, which is thinking how he thought, was between the Germans and the Jews. That's what Hitler Yemachshemai want. He realized that this is between the, the the German and the Jews. You know what Hitler said? He said, "Yeah, we are barbarians." And we're happy to, we're proud to be barbarians. And what did the Jew say? The Jew says something very interesting. He says, the Jew says that, you know, we got the Torah from God. One God. Only one God. That there's, you know, moral obligations on every Jewish human being. We have reasons for it. And that was directly opposing what Hitler was saying. Hitler was saying, no, his might is, 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 is whoever's strongest is going to win. So you have over here the Jewish people. You have over here Hitler and their ideas are diametrically opposing each other. So Hitler went and his fight was directly against the Jewish people. I want to share with you a quote from John Adams, the second president of the United States. He goes and it says this. He says, I insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. They are the most glorious nation that ever inhabited earth. They have given religion to three quarters of the globe and they have influenced the fears of mankind more and more happily than any other nation, ancient or modern. This was a direct threat to Hitler. Because what happened beforehand? Beforehand was a Vodazara. What was a Vodazara? A Vodazara was when somebody went and decided he's going to start a new religion. How did he start a new religion? He had a certain taiva, a certain temptation. And he says, oh, this is the temptation. Now, this idol says that you have to do my temptation. So instead of it something bad, now that bad thing is actually a mitzvah. So what happened over here? Instead of having a problem with the Jewish people who gave the message of God, they said, let's kill the messenger. Let's destroy the messenger. If I could quote a neurologist, a Jewish neurologist, by the name of Sigmund Freud, he said, Jews are not hated so much because they killed JC, they're hated because they produced him. 
They're hated because they produce somebody that gives something with morality. Again, Christianity is a false sense of morality, but again, they produce, they produce that concept. And this is what philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, that a human being can survive anyhow as long as he has a proper why. Meaning that we have been through so much anti-Semitic persecution pogroms and death throughout our entire, throughout our entire history. And we could, we could endure that as long as we understand why. But the question is, do we understand why? We know the, Jewish, the non-Jewish nation do not understand why. But do we, the Jews, understand why? Now the question is, how do you understand the why of the Jew? There's one answer to that. One word answer, and that's the Torah. When you go and you learn what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to follow the Torah? What does it mean to follow the word of God? Then all of a sudden you have a reason of a why that this is all worth it. If you don't have that, you know what happens with, when, you ha- when you deal with anti-Semitism and you add ignorance into that? That equals assimilation. But if we realize the reason of why we're persecuted, if we realize the reason of why we've dealt what we have dealt with, then all of a sudden maybe we have some hope. Now, we all know that everything that happens, happens directly from Hashem. Everything that happens in your life, every single item, every single iota of thing happens directly from Hashem. Now, the question that is that I ask, at least, is that what do you get with the majority of the Jews after these anti-Semitic attacks? What do they say? They say we have to arm ourselves, we have to put guards at the, at the, you know, at the entrance of the synagogues, which again, not saying that's wrong. Hishtadlos. You can look at the famous question that was asked recently to Rabbi Chaim Ganevsky. So like, I'm not saying what's right or wrong. You have to do the Hishtadlos. But is that the final message, the real message that we have to learn how to bear arms? We have to learn how to shoot a rifle? That's what we have to get out of this? Or maybe we have to stop and think for a second. It says, why did Hashem do this? Why did Hashem allow this to happen? Now there's something very interesting. When you look at the holiday of Purim and the holiday of Hanukkah. We know Purim, Haman wanted to destroy us, kill us, annihilate us. What did we do? We didn't fight against him. We did tshuva, we prayed, and we got saved. Hanukkah didn't try to kill us. What did they try to do? They tried to make us become more Hellenized, more like the non-Jews. And what happened? We fought against them. Now I heard this from Rabbi Yosef Greenfield. He quotes the Chafetz Chaim. And he says that when, this is what the Chafetz Chaim says, that if if the non-Jewish people attack our physical bodies, then the only thing that we can do is tshuva. The only thing that we are required to do is introspection. Why is it that God is sending this to us? Why is it that God is giving us these problems? Says the Chafetz Chaim, but if God goes and sends an attack on our soul, then we fight. That's what we fight. We look at what's going on over here. This is an attack on our bodies. This is an attack. Doesn't, you know, doesn't differentiate. We had an attack you know, not too long ago on a reform temple. And then we had an attack on an orthodox temple. It's not an attack on our ideologies. It's our attack on our physical bodies, meaning that what we need to do is introspection and look into ourselves. Chuva, what is it that we need to do? I want to share with you a story from the Gesher Achaim. The Gesher Achaim brings a story about twins in a womb. There were two twins in a womb, and they were hunched over. They were all you know, floating in liquid. They you know, were not using their nose or their mouth or the ears or their eyes. They were being fed through their navel. And one twin had a vision. He says, you know, when we get out of here, Think of it like a prison sentence. Right? When we get out of here, there's going to be a magnificent world. We're going to be able to breathe through our nose. We're going to be able to eat through our mouths. We're going to be able to hear through our ears. We're going to be able to see through our eyes. We're going to be able to stand direct. And we're going to be able to walk and transverse, transverse the entire earth where there's going to be beautiful scenery, beautiful sights. And the, guy, the other twin is like, you're crazy. Like, what have you been you know, eating through your navel tube? Like, what have you been smoking? Like, what has been going on with you? 
And the other, the naive one, goes and says, no, it's not only that. He says, you know there's somebody called Mother? And he's like, Mother? The other one? The other twin is like, but this is she has Mother. He's like, yeah, yeah, when we get out, there's a mother. And that mother is going to go, and it's going to feed us. It's going to take care of us. It's going to clothe us. It's going to give us warmth and emotional support. And the other twin is starting to laugh. He's like, you believe that? <laughs> That's like a joke. There's no such thing as mother. There's no such thing as another world. So the other twin goes and says, well, what's going to happen when we get out of here? He says, when we get out of here, it's darkness, death. There's nothing. There's nothing that gets out of here. And one twin would argue with another, what's going to be when we get out of here? Nine months go by. And suddenly, it gets tighter and tighter. And the naive twin, the one that believed in the other life, started getting sucked out. And he's getting sucked out. And the other twin was like, no, please, my brother, my brother. Until he doesn't see the brother anymore. He's like, that's it. My brother died. My brother passed on. And he's in nothingness. And what do we know? We know on the other side of the womb, there's a family that's singing and crying. Mazel tov. Congratulations. There's a baby that's born. In our years on earth, this is a gestation period for the heavenly birth that we're coming after 120. Now the question is, how do you live your life? Do you live your life to a means to an end that everything only matters right here, right now? Or do you live your life and starting something else in the next world? Meaning that there's a reason, there's a purpose of why we're here. And it's not just because of the fact that we have to make money and we have to buy nice houses and we have to go and send our kids to the highest colleges and we have to you know, be very respectful in society. There is something else going on. There's something deeper going on. There's, we are in a gestation period. We are pregnant for the next world. And the question is, do you live that way? And if you live that way, that means you live that way everything else. Everything else that happens in your life, you live that way. Meaning that if something bad happens to you, you start thinking, why did God do this? There's a reason. This is not the, man, this is not the final step. When you think about it, you know what one twin told the other? It says, if this is the end game, then why do we have a nose? Why do we have eyes? Why do we have ears? Why do we have a mouth? We could ask the same question on our bodies. There are so many things that we don't utilize to the full extent. There are so many things that we don't, we're not able to utilize to the utmost extent. And do we ever ask, why did God give this to us? Why did we get this beautiful gift of life? Do we stop for a second and think, well, man, maybe there's something else that's happening afterwards. And if it is, then the second that, God forbid, some anti-Semitic thing happens, and the first thing that we should think about is like, why? But now, why did they do it? Why did God send us? Why did Hashem Yisbarach go and send us a wake-up call? That is a real question that we need to ask. Now, the Dumna Maggid goes and says a beautiful namashal I want to share with you. That, let's say you live your life, you're a religious person. Check for you, amazing. You keep Shabbos, you keep kosher, you keep everything, right? You're like the one of the Lamed Vav Tadikim. You're like, you know, the Babasali, you know, like you could give blood, whatever it is, right? You're like the highest of the high. But the question is as follows. Do you care for the person that is sitting right next to you? Says the Dibba I want to share with you a story. There was a father, a very wealthy Talmud Chacham, that he, was, he had a birthday of 70 years old, and he decided he had two children living in a different country. And he said, he'd call, he sends a telegram to the children, he says, I want you to come, and come to visit me on my, on my birthday, on the 70th birthday, and any expense that you do for my honor, I'm going to pay you back five time, 20 times that amount. 20 times that amount. So, the brothers hear this. There was one brother that was well off. He was very wealthy. He went and he bought a new coach. He bought a new. He bought everything new. Like the entire, like the entire family had a new wardrobe. Like everything went top to bottom, brand new. He spent fifty thousand dollars. He kept the receipts. 
doing a corporate style. He knew how to do it. Right? He kept everything, kept all the receipts, and he packs it up. The day comes for him to travel. He starts traveling. As he's traveling, he sees his brother sitting on the curb. His brother wasn't, was very poor, didn't have means. So He was so poor that he didn't have the ability to even go and borrow money. He didn't even have the ability to have a line of credit. And the wealthy brother goes to him and says, you're not going to uh, dad's uh, birthday? And he says, I would love to, but I, I can't even rent a coach. So the brother, out of the kindness of his heart, he says, why don't you come with me? He says, come on my carriage. We'll go together to our father's, uh, father's birthday. So they go and they travel to the father's birthday. They get there. The wealthy brother goes over to the, to the father and he brings him the receipt of everything. He says, $50,000 I spent in your honor. He says, you got to go and you, you owe me now $1 million, one, you know, times 20. You owe me a million dollars. So the father goes over to him and says, I'm not paying you one red cent. And he says, what do you mean? You told me that if whatever I buy for your honor, you're going to go and you're going to pay me back times 20. I bought all this for your honor. The father says, absolutely, you didn't buy this for my honor. You bought this for your honor. If you really did this for my honor, then how would you let your brother sitting in rags and not even have his family have enough money for a coach go and and come to me like that? If you really cared about my honor, you would have taken care of your brother. Says the Dobinamagid, if we really care about God, if we really had this loving connection of a Kaddish Baruch then why don't we care about our brothers and sisters? When was the last time that you reached out to your brother, a sister, or a friend, a neighbor, a coworker that didn't keep Shabbos, didn't keep kosher? We go, we're like, we're the biggest Lamed Vav Tzadikah, and be like, well, wait a minute. Did you? Did you care for somebody else? I want to share with you something from the Chavos of Avos. Now, I want to give you an introduction. To, for, there's a reason why I need to give you this introduction. Generally, when you open up a Sefer, when you open up a, a holy book, you open up, you want to look at the approbations, uh, the Haskamos. Like, so who said that this rabbi who wrote the Sefer is a good rabbi? Like, who, like what's going on up here? So if, let's say you open up, you see something for Moshe Feinstein, you'd be like, Psst, you know, like, hey, this guy's pretty good. Sephardi, you see Chamavadi Yosef, you'd be like, yeah, unbelievable. Let's say you open up, you see something for the Benish Chai, you'd be like, whoa, unbelievable. You go, you open up, you see something for the Vilna Gaon, you say, but let's say you open up a Sefer, and you see it has scum from an angel. Like a malach, an angel from God goes and says, this book, yeah, it's good. I recommend it. Five stars, two thumbs up. Right? Is that, can you get anything higher than that? The Chavos of Avos has that type of askama. The base Yosef, who is known to learn with the Magid, with an angel, went over and told Rabbi Yosef Kara, this angel told Rabbi Yosef Kara, Magid Misharm, the end of, of Parshas Bahar, he says, read a passage from Chobos of Avos every single day because he knew how to subjugate the Yetzirah like nobody else. Here you have an angel that's saying, this, this is good. Read this. Learn this. The Arizal told the students to study Chobos of Avos every single day. And I want to share with you, there's a reason why I gave you that introduction. Now bear with me. There's what the Chobos of Avos says in Shar Ahavas Hashem Perik Vav, the gate of loving God, the sixth chapter. He goes and he says, let's say that you are a believer in God and you have reached the utmost, highest level of improvement in your own neshama and your own soul. And you approach the level of near prophets, nevuah, prophets, that's the highest level. You would not equal one who guides others to the right path and directs wicked to the service of the Creator. Meaning that someone who has a privilege to teach other people that there is a God and has, has achieved more than those who have scaled the heights of self-perfection. You want to reach heights, says the Chavos of Avos. You want to reach the highest level? Do something called Kirov. Help your fellow Jew. We know that 
there's a mission in Pirkei Avos that says that there was ten generations from Noach to, to Avraham. And it says that Avraham went, and throughout those ten generations, the, the, the people were doing bad, and they angered God. And they angered God, and angered God, and angered God, and angered God, all the way until Avraham Abinu came, and he got reward for everybody. The question that is asked, Avram Avinu, why was Avram Avinu the only one? You know that there was a Shiva of Shem Be'ever during that time. You have there Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov studied in Shem Be'ever. Why wasn't Shem Be'ever you know, mentioned in this? Says the Rambam in Hilchas Avodas Kachavim. And he goes and he says that there was a downward spiral until Avram Avinu came. And what happened? He discovered God. And his mission was something very different than Shem Be'ever. His mission was that he traveled and he went and he re-educated the world that there is one God. Says the Kesef Mishnah, the Shem and Aver were great righteous men. But they were lacking one thing that Avraham Avinu had. You know what that was? Vayikra b'shem Hashem. And Avraham Avinu called in the name of God. What does that mean? That he traveled the world and he says, Hey, do you know that idolatry, polytheism, all this, all this falsehood is nothing. There's one God that created the heavens and the earth. And he went and he taught them that. Says the Chavos of Allah, You want to reach the highest level? Be like Avraham. Teach your fellow Jew how to get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The reason why every single one of us are here tonight is because of an organization called Torah Life. It was started by two brothers, David and Joshua. How did it start? It started off with two brothers going and opening up a simple WhatsApp chat. If you don't know what WhatsApp is, may God bless you until 120 with amazing blessing for everything. If you do know what it is, welcome to the filthy world. (laughs) These two young brothers went, and they opened up this, this chat. But that wasn't enough for them. They decided, no, now we have to record Torah Shirim. We have to go and record, you know, other speakers going and spreading Torah to the entire world. That wasn't enough for them either. They went, and they started organizing class. The entire Shir Torah that we have here tonight is in merit in them. It's thanks to them. There we have. Yes. And you know what the, one of the brothers told me? Because you want to know the message that they want to give to each and every single one of you? Is that you don't need to be a tzaddik, you don't need to be a, you don't need to be a millionaire to go and spread Torah. You could be an average person that is working and you're going and you're arranging Torah classes. You're starting Torah cl- groups and you're set, spreading out Torah. You don't need to be the big of the top of the top to spread Torah. Anybody can do it. Anybody has the ability to spread Torah. I want to finish off with one thought. One very important thought. I spoke to somebody. I, this is a story that I heard firsthand. Last week I spoke to Danny. Danny is a 15-year-old boy from Queens. He is a boy that doesn't keep Shabbos, doesn't daven, or didn't. And he was going and he was selling on the street, you know, the love and Esrogim on before Sukkot, before Sukkot. And there was a person that walked past by. This person's name was Reb Shimon Kol Yaakov. Whoever knows Shimon Koyakov, he's one of the founders of Torah Anytime. He walks up, he sees this secular-looking boy, and he goes over to Danny, and he starts schmoozing with him. And he goes over, and he tells Danny, he says, listen, as they're, they're talking, he says, let me give you a present. I'm a Jew, I love presents, no problem. Says Shimon Koyakov, give me your phone. He takes his phone, and he goes to the contacts, and he adds this following number. He adds the number 929 355 4268. He saved it as Torah Anytime Daily Inspiration. And then he WhatsApp text, add me to this number. And he gives him the phone back. And then he tells to Danny, Danny, you wear uh, this? And Danny says, no, I don't. 
Shimon Kalev goes across the street, buys him and his friend Sittis, and gives it to both of them. That was the end of the story. Three weeks ago, Shimon Kalev goes and tells me, he gets a phone call. It's Danny. And he goes and he says, Rabbi Shimon Kalev, you've changed my life. And Shimon Kalev was like, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, what, what happened? I mean, I changed everybody's life. I, you know, I started drawing time. You know, I, he didn't say that. But he does. You know, like, so he goes, and, and Danny goes and says that, you remember you put the daily dose on my phone? And he's like, yeah. And he says, you know, I wasn't King Shabbos. I wasn't davening. He says, and I started listening to the daily dose. And since then, I have been keeping Shabbos 100%. And I have, da- when I daven, I, I spoke to him. Don't personally. 10 minutes that it takes him to Amish Manasrei. Because he says every single word. Here's a 15-year-old boy that changes life from something that is so two-minute to five-minute Torah class. And he calls up Rabbi Shimon Kalyakov and he says, Rabbi, he says, you have changed my life. And Shimon Kalyakov goes and tells him, he says, he's like, this is unbelievable. I love these stories. He says, you've made my week. This is what he tells this, uh, this, you know, this Danny, this 15-year-old boy. And Danny goes over to him and says, says, Rabbi, he says, I may have made your week, but you have made my life. He says, we have something very simple. You may not be able to go and arrange a Torah class, even though it's quite simple, but you may not. You may not be able to go and give a Torah lecture. You may not be able to go and learn with somebody one by one. But my question to you is, do you have 20 seconds for your brother or your sister to go and add on their phone something called the Torah Anytime Daily Dose. Do you have, because that I can guarantee that will change lives. I spoke, when I told, when I spoke to Danny, I said, Danny, be honest with me. Did you keep Shabbos before anything? He says, no, I was on my phone. He says, did you, did you learn, did you daven? He says, no, I didn't daven. Because of the Torah Anytime Daily Dose, he went and he started, he started keeping Shabbos. And not only that, he started davening, but a level of like, uh, you know, Rachel Emenu, like a high level. Two to five minutes a day. I've been told by people. People. Some people can't handle lectures. They can't. Some guy going and screaming. Uh, they can't do it. Two to five minutes with a little bit of music in the background. Yeah, I could do that. And they went and they signed. And that's where they get the spirituality. Two to five minutes. And by the way, let me preempt you. For those people that say, well, somebody forwarded it to me. There's nothing like getting it from the original. Take this number down. 929-355-4268. Take that, save it, send ad me. And if you have it already, everybody should have ready something sitting by your, by, you know, by your desk. Let's say you can't do care of. Let's say for whatever reason, this you could do. I can guarantee you I have seen this change people's lives. I have spoken firsthand to people that this has changed lives. So when you go and you say, listen, God, yeah, the hope of us is amazing, this concept, but I can't do that. One thing that you could do, can you get somebody to sign up to something called Torah Anytime Daily Dose? If you could, then you don't realize the success that you have. They do such an amazing job. They do unbelievable, so much work goes into it. People can change their lives to it. If you don't have it, then you sign up right here, right now. If you do have it, then find somebody else. That's your goal. Do something for somebody else. We all know that We've been dealt very difficult you know, times through you know, anti-Semitism, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in France, whether it's in New York, whether it's throughout the entire world. The question is, what did you do for it? Now, I'm not saying this is the reason and this is the cause. I, I don't know. I'm not an obvious, and I, nor do I claim to be one. But one thing that we do know is Tom Dark and I could call him. Every, the bottom line is, if you go and you help a fellow Jew, 
You're able to go and guide somebody else to get to them to the closer to the Torah. Who knows how much benefit that will not only bring to them, but will bring to you and your descendants after you. So my final lesson that I want to share with you tonight is, do you have 20 seconds for your brothers and sisters? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.